episode of Motleyful Answers is supported by NetSuite, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. Download their free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, today at netsuite.com slash fool. This is Motleyful Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. I never get tired of saying that. <laughs> Hello, everybody. Uh, we didn't talk about this sooner, but congratulations on 15 years of early retirement. Oh, thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. 15 years. That's, the, <laughs> that's all you have that's to say more, That's more than 10. <laughs> uh, so I, I actually did calculate in the 15 years how many articles have been published in early retirement. Not, I haven't written all of these, but articles, special reports, podcasts, all that stuff. Over 2,000. Wow. 2,000. And I wrote, I wrote most of them, so... For better or worse, it's a lot of Robert Brogamp. In today's episode, Morgan Housel from the Collaborative Fund is back to help us learn from all the different kinds of stupid in the world. All that and more on this week's episode of Molly Full Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, this just in from the Department of Something Everyone Knows. College is just getting more expensive. Uh, I thought we were stopping that. I thought we were doing something about that. <laughs> yes, but so here's the next question. So is it still worth it? And mm. that is a question that was addressed on the Liberty Street Economics blog, which is a blog of the New York Federal Reserve. Who knew that the Federal Reserve had its own blog? Okay. But anyways, there's a series of articles written by Justin Abel and Richard Dietz. So one article does talk about how college is indeed getting expensive, so here's one stat from that article. So tuition for a bachelor's degree has more than tripled on an inflation-adjusted basis from an average of about 5000 a year in the 1970s to around 18000 today. So it has gone up and on an inflation-adjusted basis as well. No question about it. So then their question is, well, then, is it still worth it? So the basic answer is most likely yes. So these days... Someone with a college degree earns, on average, $78,000 a year. Someone who doesn't have a college degree earns, on average, $45,000 a year. So definitely college grads are earning more. But that's just one side of it. The other side of what about the cost of it? Mm. So they looked at the cost of it, but also the opportunity cost. So they factored in the difference between someone going to college, not earning money, versus someone who just goes straight into the workforce and earns money for that four Mm. or five years. And they figured out actually a return on the investment of going to college over the next 40 years, which is generally the length of a career. And the answer is, it's a pretty good investment. Mm. On average, in the 80s, the return on a college investment was about 8 to 9%. 8 to 9%. And then it accelerated to 16% going up to the dot-com bust. Since the Great Recession, it actually has dropped to about 14% due mostly to the fact that it's getting more expensive. The input on the equation is just going higher. But still, a 14% return on your investment is pretty good. That said, it doesn't work that way for everybody. So this is assuming you went to college for four years. The return (laughs) drops significantly if it takes you more than four years to graduate. And for 25% of the people with a college degree, they earn the same or less than someone who didn't get that degree. So sort of depends a little degree, a bit on what kind of job you get when you get out of college. Yeah, There are plenty of people here at The Motley Fool who do not have college degrees, and they're doing perfectly fine. And certainly, the return on investment for them by just going straight into the workforce has been good. It doesn't work out that way for everybody. 
Um, and then, of course, the people who are the worst off are the people who go to college, pay for the degree, but don't actually end up graduating. That's a really bad situation. So certainly before you start that process, you want to make sure that you're actually going to graduate and then have a pretty good idea of what kind of job you're going to get afterwards to evaluate whether it's worth it. Did they talk about particular majors and which ones paid off the most? They didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, then, but another thing, too, this is we a We can big, all make guesses, though. Yes, we can all make guesses. <laughs> um, but it's, it's another thing that, was re- that I learned related to a previous episode that we're looking at when we had ARP as a guest talking about how people are working longer. Um, the people who are working the longest are the people with the most education. So people with a master's degree or higher, the percentage of those folks 65 and older who are still working, 31%. If you just have a bachelor's degree, 25%. Just a high school graduate, 15%. Why is that happening? Lots of, don't really know. It could be that better education you have, the more likely you are to have a job where it's not physically taxing, it's more intellectually stimulating, you're more willing to stay in that job. But there is a correlation to getting a good education and being able to stay in the workforce longer, which is great for your net worth and your retirement security. Do you have one more thing for me, bro? Oh, I do. (laughs) At least one more. I do. Guess who just performed here in the Washington, D.C. area? The Rolling Stones. They're still touring. but the funny part about this, and this comes from a CNBC article written by Lori Konish, the tour has one sponsor. It is the Alliance for Lifetime Income, which is basically what? an organization of financial services firms try to help people enhance their retirement security, often through annuities. But they have a bus that goes along with the tour. They play music, give out tickets. They want you to come in there and, and use this retirement planning tool to figure out whether you're, you're on track. It's kind of brilliant when you think about it because the age group of people who attend a Rolling Stones concert is 45 to like till 70s. And these are the people who need to be looking at their retirement security. So I think it's hilarious that they're going. I am a little nervous about the whole. We're we're hearing more and more about annuities these days. Mm -hmm. Even I've talked about them, and I think they can make sense in some instances. We talked previously about the Secure Act, which passed. The house, which is going to make it easier to put annuities in 401ks, which makes me a little nervous. But regardless, I do think a lifetime immediate income annuity can be a good alternative for like the, basically the bonds or so that you would have had otherwise in retirement. Um, but I just think it's hilarious that the Rolling Stones has this. And I just admire the Rolling Stones. You know how old Mick Jagger is now? No. 75. He just, ah. he just had heart surgery or something like that. But if you look at his Twitter feed, there's videos of him dancing, videos of him playing his guitar. The dude still got it. He still rocks. He still rocks. So good for them. What it, what's your favorite Rolling Stones song? Um, Sympathy for the Devil. Rick? Paint It Black, maybe? Hmm. Rocks Off. I'm not sure I'm familiar with that one. Oh, it's good. <laughs> like, you cannot hear that song and not be like, I'm going to walk down this sidewalk hard and just like <laughs> nod my head at people. It's, so, it's a good song. Um, highly recommend it. Well, with that final tip, that's what's up. This episode of Molly Philancers is brought to you by NetSuite. If you're a small business owner, you know how hard it can be to get a handle on all the numbers. Often because you have so many systems, one for accounting, one for sales, it's inefficient and it hurts your bottom line. NetSuite by Oracle is the world's number one cloud business system, and it handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform, giving you the visibility and control you need to grow. 
With NetSuite, you save time, money, and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance, accounting, orders, and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide. Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com slash fool. That's netsuite.com slash fool to download your free guide. Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits. netsuite.com slash fool. Jeff Bezos once said, The older I get, the more I realize how many kinds of smart there are. There are a lot of kinds of smart. There are a lot of kinds of stupid, too. And so joining us today in studio is Morgan Housel with the Collaborative Fund. A few weeks back, you were here to talk about different kinds of smart, and now we're going to cover different ways of being stupid that you, too, can avoid. Maybe. Maybe, I don't know. Maybe not. Some, Some people can't avoid it. Well, let's try. Acknowledging them is the first step to avoiding them. So the first one is intelligence creep. Not knowing the boundaries of what you're good at and assuming talent in one area signals skill in all others. So there's actually studies on this uh, that signal out doctors, studies that have uh, doctors, that doctors tend to make very poor investors. And I think it's it's, totally going to say doctors. it's, It's very, I think it's hard to actually pinpoint like the cause of this. But what makes a lot of sense is that doctors who are very smart in one field, they're very talented. By becoming doctors, they've you know great standardized test scores. They're very intelligent. And they assume that that intelligence uh, should transfer over to their investing abilities. And so they tend to take much more risk with their investing. They have much more confidence or overconfidence, overconfidence yeah. with their investing abilities that leads to poor returns. And I think it's, it's one of these things that's so hard for people to wrap their heads around because people who fall for this bias are very smart and very successful. And it's it's hard to tell them like that doesn't mean that you're also good at something else. Hurts your ego, man. And there's, you know, a, a doctor would never assume that because they're a smart doctor, they're also like a good plumber or electrician, mm. or maybe there's some. But there's like that's obvious that the skill doesn't shouldn't transfer. But I think for whatever reason, investing is this is idea of like, oh, I'm a smart person, so I understand the economy, I understand how markets work, even though it's a, such a completely different skill. And I think a lot of it is a lot of skills that people are very intelligent about are hard sciences, medicine or physics or biology or something where there's a right answer for questions. Whereas investing is just so nuanced and it's governed by behavior that's messy and has like there's an exception to every rule. I think that trips a lot of people up. I think another category beyond beyond doctors are engineers Hmm. because engineers have a precise answer for everything down to the 10th decimal point. And investing, you just need, that's not how it works. Investing is about the odds of success and room for error and being okay with being wrong, you know, 60% of the time, but still doing okay, which is just a very different dynamic than what exists in engineering, where there's a precise answer for everything. Right, right. I also think of doctors as being like very comfortable with large amounts of debt at a young age because of student loans. Because they have to. Because they have to. And then they also have a lot of money to make mistakes with. They're yeah. higher earners. So, right. they're, so, that they're, so rather than... Uh, the trope that doctors are really bad aerospace engineers. Right. It's we we get investing. Right. So, next one. Thankfully, they're not oh. building airplanes though. Right. If, if they thought they were good aerospace engineers. All right. Number two. <laughs> underestimating the complexity of how past successes were gained in a way that makes you overestimate their repeatability. Is this about luck? I, uh, yeah, I think that's that, that's way about. That. I, 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 sh- I could have just written luck. Luck. But I, I rambled on for a right. while. I think this is especially true in investing where. 
you, you know, during one bull market, you do really well. And therefore you assume like, hey, here's what I did during this bull market. And therefore I'm going to do it again. I'm just going to take what I did last time and do it again without realizing that markets evolve over time and what worked during one period of time might not work during the next period of time. This is especially true if you just look at something simple like growth versus value investing. You go through these 10 or even 20 year periods where growth investing does really well, which is the past 15 years. Mm -hmm. But before that, there was a period where growth did terrible and value did really well. So unless you're willing to have like a flexible mindset and understand that what led to success in one era might not be repeatable in the next, you get these people that get really tripped up and frustrated. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to 2007, value investing was all the rage. And over the previous 10 or 15 years, value investors had smoked everyone else. And this is when like the Berkshire Hathaway annual meeting started getting really popular Mm -hmm. because everyone wanted to be a value investing. And a lot of these value investors since 2007, over the past 12 years, the returns are terrible Mm -hmm. because value investing has just been so difficult over the past 12 years. And what's worked is growth investing, Facebook, Amazon, Google, Mm -hmm. and whatnot. And a lot of these value investors, if you speak to them, I think are either in some state of denial or they're just really confused and frustrated (laughs) that they were so successful before. And then it just at the flip of a switch, that success stopped. When I started at The Motley Fool, there were kind of camps where it was like Bill Mann and Joe Mager, they're value investors. Throw Mike Olson on the pile, too. And then there was like David Gardner and and they're the growth investors. And I think if you talk to Joe Mager now, he's going to be like... Yeah, I'm no longer like this hardcore value guy. But see, that's the personality that you want. You want someone who is able to change their mind when it's necessary. The people who are like, I'm a value investor and I'm never going to change my mind, or a growth investor never changed my mind. Those are the people that end up having trouble. Yeah, I wish I could give Joe my money, but he's over in Australia. Well, you can move to Australia. (gasps) Can I? Sure. You have my my permission. Thank you. All right, next one. Discounting the views of people who aren't as credentialed as you are, underestimating the special knowledge they have since they've experienced a world you haven't. This is especially true, I think, in finance, where at the the upper echelons of finance, we get into investment banking and private equity. If you didn't go to an Ivy League school and if you didn't intern at at, at Goldman Sachs, Mm -hmm. you're not worth speaking to. That's, That's like only a slight exaggeration. And the flaw in that, of course, is that they just get so insular in their views because they're only talking to people who went to the same schools as them, who were taught by the same bankers at the same bank through the same summer program as them. And they're missing the views of a lot of how the rest of the world works. People who didn't go to Harvard, who didn't go to Goldman Sachs, mm-hmm. but have experienced a really important part of how the economy works. Whether you know they're from a different part of the economy, they've seen it, you know, they've experienced different industries. And the, the views of those people in aggregate are way more powerful and more influential than the group of views of like the tiny insular group that went to Goldman Sachs and Harvard. And I think where this is probably most relevant is in politics, where after the 2016 election, a big part of the country realized that there's another part of the country that they had never really was aware of. And they're think, a little that, angry. That thinks very differently about yeah. the world than they did. Yeah. And I think for a lot of people, for a lot of voters after 2016, that was just a shock because they had only spoken to people by and large who were of the same general, you know, they went to the same schools as them. They worked yeah. in the same companies yeah. as them. And we all agree. Isn't that great? Therefore, the whole country agrees with us. Right. Exactly. But I think that also exists in investing as well. Yeah. So uh, Tom Gardner uh, spoke in front of a group of people at The Fool this last week, um, Leadership Greater Washington. It's uh, this group that David's involved in. And Tom's advice to everyone there, um, and it's a group of uh, a wide age range of people in D.C. Um, who are, it's a leadership I don't know, Leadership Greater Washington, Leadership Group. I'm butchering what it is that they actually do. But anyway, 
networking, growing your skills, connecting, that kind of thing. And his advice to this group of people, who are all accomplished in their own way, is that they need to get a mentor that's younger than them. Yeah, I think that's great. That they need to find someone who can explain <laughs> what the future is. What's because when you're older, you just get so locked down into your world and what you know. You forget that what you know is actually dying out with you. 100%. My, my three-year-old son, I, this is no exaggeration, is more adept at using an iPad than my parents. Mm. No, not even an exaggeration. And I think when you and I, Allison, are in our 60s, it's going to be the same thing. Yeah. There's going to be things that 30-year-olds, 20-year-olds understand that we just will not be able to wrap our heads around. So as the world evolves, like to be able to understand the views of someone who's seen a different world than you, who's grown up with different values than you, is really important. Yeah. I feel weird about still having like going up to a gen. What's the what's younger than Gen than millennials? Gen Y or something right now? Are we calling Gen them? Z? Gen Z. Thank you, Gen Z. Wouldn't you feel weird just going up to someone and being like, "Can you explain how the Snapchats work?" I've done that at work. We have we have some I've d- I've some Gen it. Z at our I've office, and I've, I've asked them tech questions. It's I've, embarrassing. It is embarrassing. <laughs> you just gotta suck it up, I guess. All right, can, next can, one. Can you tell me how the Google works? What is the Google? <laughs> Yeah. All right. Next one. Not understanding that in the classroom, the game is you versus the test. But in the real world, it's you versus coworkers, employees, customers, regulators, etc., all of whom need to be persuaded by more than having the right answer. That's just like if you're taking a test in school, as long as you calculate the right answer, you win. That's Don't all care you, how you that's got all, there. That's all you need to know. Yeah. And if you're a jerk, if you can't communicate with people, doesn't matter. You calculate the right answer, you're good. But in the real world, once you get into the, you know, once you start working at companies, it's not the case whatsoever. And if you are very talented at your skill, you're a great engineer, you're a great coder, whatever, but you're a jerk, you can't work with people, you can't communicate with people, you can't persuade people, it's not going to work. And I feel like this happens a lot. Most of us have probably seen someone who was an absolute straight A student at a great school, just, just off the charts intelligent, and they kind of flounder in their careers because it's a very different skill that you need in the workplace than is tested in school. But so much of our view of like what is intelligence, it's your grades at school. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't necessarily translate to how well you're going to do in the real world. There's so many other skills that you need to that you need to know. Yeah. There's um there's a saying, you know, the confused mind says no. And the idea of like if you want to convince someone of something that you have the right answer, you got to bring them on the journey because if you just present them with it and they're at all confused, their first answer is going to be no. Um, I'd be interested to hear, as you've gone on in your career, maybe what's what's one of the things you've learned for helping convince people? Um, how, do you, how do you do it? How do you communicate? Well, I think it's, I think for a lot of things, it's your, just your ability to tell a story that people can wrap their heads around. And even if you have the right answer, let's say you're, like you're solving an engineering problem and you know the answer. The answer is two plus two equals four. Mm-hmm. But you can't just give people that equation and expect them to come along with you. You need to tell them a story about how you got there, why it's important, why this is going to make a difference, and explain it to them in a way that is compelling to them, that is short enough that you're going to capture their attention. You're not just going to ramble on with a 50-page PowerPoint. Mm-hmm. I think it's just, I think the power of storytelling is more important than almost any of the other skills that we think about that are taught in school because a lot of those skills like math and science and whatnot aren't effective unless you can tell a persuasive story around them. Mm-hmm. So that's like, if I, I think if there's a skill that should be taught to a greater degree in schools, it's probably storytelling, which is this really soft. Like when you say that people probably think like kindergarten, like telling yeah, stories, yeah. what is that? But all these other things that we learn aren't that effective unless you can tell an effective story around them. And a lot of the best writers of all time, 
are people who in their fields, if they're mathematicians or historians, are not the greatest. But they were very good storytellers. And because of that, they went to the top of the heap. Mm-hmm. My favorite example is Bill Bryson, who among historians, he's, a, he's kind of a pop historian, let's say. And if you, if you like within, within historian circles, he's not looked upon that highly. If you're a hardcore historian from Harvard or stuff yeah. or whatever, it's like I didn't see like, you in the like, library. It's like Bill Bryson is not really a historian, yeah. but he's such a good writer, mm-hmm. such an amazing storyteller that he sold millions and millions of books. And I think that's that's a perfect that's a perfect example. The, another example is the book *Sapiens*. The author's name I I always have a hard time saying. Yuval Noah Harari. Maybe it's I'm probably butchering that, but I think that's it. Uh, his book *Sapiens* did not break any new ground about biology or evolution. Everything that's written in the book was already known, mm-hmm. but he did such an amazing job telling the story that the book sold 8 million copies. So I think if you are a phenomenal biologist or, you know, you work, you know, you're the, a tenure professor at Harvard studying evolutionary biology, you probably look at that and say, this guy hasn't discovered anything, but he's the most popular. And the reason is because he's such a good storyteller. So storytelling is one of those things that like, um, unless you master that, all the other important skills don't really matter. Yeah, right. <laughs> All right, and the final one, closed system thinking. Underestimating the external consequences of your decisions in a hyperconnected world or dismissing how quickly those consequences can backfire on you. I think like we were talking earlier about a lot of what goes on in investing is related to politics, particularly the triggers of recessions and bear markets and whatnot. So if you are an investor who says, I'm not into politics, like I'm just an investor, I don't pay attention to politics, I think that's fine. Uh, and it's fine if you're just willing to put up with recessions and bear markets, which is a great attitude. But the fact is that politics plays a big role in investing. So if you're just looking at investing through the lens of finance, there's all these other forces that have a big impact on it. And if you're ignoring that, then you're probably going to have an experience that is vastly different from what you expect. And this is also true, again, if you're an engineer and you just think about a problem through engineering, but to succeed at your company, you also need to be adept at your company's Politics, you're in internal politics, like how to move up, how to persuade people, all these other forces that play a big role, even if you, know, if you get trapped within your own field and ignoring everything else that makes a difference. It's hard to, it's hard to move ahead. It's a special kind of stupid. It's special. Um, and then you closed your article with Bernie Madoff summarized this idea a year before his scheme unraveled. So Bernie Madoff, about a year before his, his, his quote-unquote hedge fund fell to the ground, was did an interview. And this is on video. You can look it up on YouTube. And he said... This is not verbatim. I don't remember what it was exactly, but it's pretty close to this. He said, investors don't understand that you cannot get away with fraud anymore. The SEC is too good at what they do. And if you are a fraudster, you will get caught. Crazy. It's just like, wow, that's, <laughs> that's Bernie Madoff saying that. And it's there, there's so many different takeaways from that. Yeah. Like, did he actually, did he know he was going to get caught? Did he think he was the exception to the rule? There's all these different all these different ways to think about it. But that's that's a really special form of stupid. <laughs> Morgan, thank you again for joining us. Thanks for having me. And listeners, you can get more Morgan at collaborativefund.com. Uh, he writes for their blog there. And you can also follow him on Twitter at Morgan Housel, at M-O-R-G-A-N-H-O-U-S-E-L. Thanks for having me. Come back again. Well, that's the show. It's edited... Rocks offingly by Rick Engdahl. <laughs> uh, I struggle every week. Uh, our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.